Greetings, and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Svare Okor. And my name is Thomas Imosen-Barnbra. And today we are discussing the 1992 movie Benny's Video by Mikhail Haneke. And it's starring Arno Frisch as Benny, Angela Winkler as Benny's mother, Anna, and Ulrich Mihe as Georg, Benny's father, Ingrid Stasner as Madchen, and cinematography by Christian Berger. Yeah, he's been a DOP for quite a few of Haneke's films, like Hidden and The White Ribbon and The Piano Teacher. And yeah, stuff. and... Um, Arnold Frisch is also in Funny Games in a quite similar role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, most of the cast here have pretty prolific careers. Angela Winkler is in Dark, the Netflix series. Yeah, Suspiria as well. Yeah, and Suspiria, amongst other things. She's quite recognizable and nice in this movie too. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and uh, Ulrich Mihe, he's also quite known for his role in The Life of Others, which is a really good film from a few years ago. Right, so what is this movie about, Thomas? It's about a young man, a teenager who's quite obsessed with video, like he has his room full of camcorders and video monitors and stuff, and his parents are quite well-to-do, Yeah, but kind of distant a bit. You know what they remind me of? You know Roald Dahl's uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? <laughs> yeah. In the contest, among the contest winners, I think Mike TV, and they're from like this family, and they have this son who's obsessed with TV. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Like video, and, and give him all sorts of like equipment and stuff. So, yeah. uh, that's funny. It's kind of uh, probably inspired by that, yeah. <laughs> it's the same story. Yeah, the same story, basically. No, the story is about this uh, young man, Benny, who's... Um, obsessing over videotapes and the, the film starts off with a, a scene where we see a pig getting shot to the head with like a, a slaughter gun or a, a cattle gun we first see see it play out and then it kind of rewinds and we see that it's a vcr we're watching and it's benny going back and forth looking at the moment of death of this animal it's about his obsession with tv and at some point when his parents are away the weekend he meets a girl outside the video shop where he's usually renting his videos and stuff and he invites her home and they hang out for a bit and then he shows her the slaughter gun and at first he dares her to shoot him she doesn't and then she dares him to shoot her initially he kind of refuses but then she calls him a coward and so he does shoot her and she falls to the floor and as she kind of screams off screen, he subsequently shoots her two more times. He has to reload the gun and he kills her. And after kind of trying to clean up a little bit and that sort of stuff, he kind of continues with his day. He does some homework. He goes to a concert with a friend. And when his parents come home, he doesn't talk to them about it initially. But after a while, he shows them the recording. Because he was recording the murder. That's right. In fact, a lot of the situations in the film, he's recording simultaneously. And the parents uh, are horrified by what they see. And they sort of debate, what should we do? And the father kind of concocts a plan that he considers to be the least troublesome for them all, like the one with the least negative consequences, which is that the mother and Benny should go to Egypt, ostensibly for like a funeral of an aunt, while he cuts up the body and gets rid of it. So they're covering up the son's murder. Yeah, and part of the consideration, I think the main point for the father is like he's thinking about their reputation and their careers and stuff. He seems quite cynical about the whole affair. Yeah. The mother seems more disturbed and unsettled and unsure of what to do, but she does go along with it. Yeah, the father is clearly the dominant one in the relationship. She sort of just goes along with the plan. So we have kind of like a nice detour in Egypt where they have like their holiday thing. And when they come back, everything's 
kind of back to normal a bit. The father has a conversation about, you know, what did you do and that sort of stuff. But then Benny confesses to the police. He shows the videotape to the police and uh, tells them he's done it and tells that his parents have covered it up. So they're a little bit miffed and he basically just says sorry and he leaves. And yeah, that's the end of the film more or less. Yeah, the plot is quite simple. Mm. It's basically just him murdering a young woman. They're both teenagers Mm. and his parents help him get away with it and he exposes them. Mm. That's sort of the the plot. It's an interesting movie in how it portrays the main character, Benny. You don't really get a sense of any of his motivations or any of his inner thoughts monologue. It's quite uh, an external movie in that sense. Yeah, Hanukkah keeps us at an arm's length. There's a fair bit of distance between us and the characters. You're not really in their subjective space at all. So you're kind of always observing. Like, there's a lot of focus on the actions that people do, like shots of hands, taking out a videotape, or cleaning up blood. Not only that, but there's a lot of screens and, Mm. uh, like, recordings. And so there's this additional element of distance, almost objectifying nearly everything that goes on in this movie. Mm. The use of screens are very vital like several scenes sort of start off with you watching a screen and you're not necessarily aware that you're watching the screen until he reveals it by winding back or some visual element that reveals it's actually not real life but it's a screen several times he's very concerned with you know what's inside and outside the frame and like the use of sound of what you can't see and how screens within screens function in the room and with us as a spectator It's really fascinating the way it does this because in a sense it's sort of it makes the viewer very aware that they're sort of part of this viewing experience and it sort of implicates the viewer in a a way that might not be possible if you didn't include the whole screens and Mm. recording theme of the movie and it's very sort of on point for the burgeoning new extremism going on starting in france and then going on in europe the whole implicating the audience Mm. in extreme situations Mm. and it does this in a very succinct way Hanuk is very good at doing this. Yeah, and it's part of his style that he keeps you at a distance to engage you intellectually because he often has long, longer takes with you know, not too many close-ups. You're often at a distance with the characters. You're often observing them and you're very conscious of your observing them. And their actions are often quite inscrutable in a sense. You don't get to delve into their emotions so much. Arno French's character, Benny, he's initially he comes off as quite confident, quite socially aware. Not in all situations, but he, he seems like a person who's fairly intelligent and he doesn't necessarily speak so much. He's clearly confident yeah. and competent. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of parallels for me in this movie to American Psycho, Brett Easton Ellis, especially the main character, because he's very confident, he's quite charming, even though he's not really very outspoken, he's not very social or anything. Mm -hmm. He has a sort of charm about him. Like, he seems to have a pretty decent social life and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, get get along with his parents Mm -hmm. and stuff. But there's something lacking in him. One of the main differences between uh, Bates from American Psycho is that he's not vain in that same way. Like Patrick Bateman is super concerned with other people's perception of him and like all the markers and signifiers in terms of clothes and music. And that's not really very... uh, He has one act, which is a very sort of clear visual signifier where he goes to a hairdresser, seemingly unplanned, and uh, has his head shaven. That's after he's killed the girl, Munchen, and before he's told his parents. 
and his father goes off on a little bit of a tangent. Do you think you're cool? Do you think you're rebelling? It's Honestly, a... he seems more shocked with him shaving his hair than him killing someone. I'm not sure about that. I think so. Like, I was really... It actually peeved me in this movie mm-hmm. how little the father seems to care mm-hmm. about this murdered girl. He doesn't give a shit. He well, only cares about his reputation. Yeah, well, I think you're right in that his main concern... When his son shaves the head, he's really concerned about, like, the social implications. And well. After he learns of the murder, he starts to think, you know, what kind of implications will this have for our life? As right. Family? It's about perception of social implications mm. and reputation and stuff like that. He but, uh, seems like a really superficial and vain character. But he also seems disturbed by the act itself, I think. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's not his main unease, but he certainly he's put off by it. It's not as if he's coldly observing it. No, you can say that, but at the same time, he willingly cuts this girl up in pieces and flushes her down the toilet. I wouldn't say he's very concerned. Like, he's concerned about appearances. Mm. Emotionally, Mm. he doesn't seem to understand the impetus of his son for doing this. But he doesn't really (laughs) care that much either. Like, Mm. he asks one time and he sort of gets a non-answer. Like, I just wanted to see what it felt like, basically. Mm. And he doesn't really ask again. He wants to uh, shove it under the rug. That's something that uh, Hanek is... He wants to brush it off and sort of move past it. And honestly, to me, the parents come off as like even more unlikable than Benny because Benny is clearly like just a sociopath. Like he has mental issues. Mm. He doesn't seem to have empathy with anything. He seems fascinated with Mm. death. And obviously from the opening shots, it's clear that the focal point in a lot of ways for this movie, besides spectatorship, is Mm. spectatorship of death Mm. and fascination with killing and violence. And for Benny, like, it seems he's very interested in it. But to me, how it can be read anyway is he's seeking for some sort of emotion. He's wanting to explore something that might make him feel something. Because it seems to me like he's living a very empty, like he's almost just a husk of a person. Well, he's certainly fixated with death. And at some point, they mention that his grandmother died, but he wasn't able to see her body. But through the television, he's kind of exposed to death all the time. And the way I read it anyway, that it looks to me like he's the cameraman when the pig is slaughtered because you can see the father slightly. So I guess I think of that as an event that's triggered this fixation where he goes back and looks at the moment of death a lot. You get like this still image of the frame with the scared eyes of the pig. Right. And I would say that's a real horrible scene. Like Mm. one of the most disturbing things I've seen Mm. in a movie ever, Mm. like the fucking close up and not just the close up, but here he whines Mm. to the precise point where you see the cattle gun being shot in the pig's brain and it's fucking disturbing like and i say this as a meat eater (laughs) but i i don't really want to be facing sort of that it's horrific yeah Uh, of course it goes on all the time (laughs) it's just you know viewing it but i find it fascinating his fascination with death and i think i agree with you that it seems like this is a very formative moment for him watching this pig being slaughtered but i think he does seem to have like some antisocial tendencies right i agree and i'm probably in combination with not that i'm trying to psychoanalyze him or Mm -hmm. anything but just trying to understand his motivations Mm -hmm. he does seem sort of interested in death and interested in sort of playing with people's I guess feelings because he wants a reaction right he shows the movie to his parents almost like here see what your son did i don't read it quite like that to me there's some desperation in him around he says that he wanted to know what it was like his father asks him why did you do it and he says i wanted to know what it's like and it doesn't feel like a premeditated thing like i'm sure there was a curiosity and he showed her the gun because he's fixating on this death uh, you don't think it was premeditated no i don't think he took her home to kill her with that intention 
Well, I think he did. But it's not explicit. Like, you can interpret it uh, either well, way. Well, I mean, that situation where he's looking at the gun, and he looks kind of surprised that he pushed the button of the cattle gun himself, I think. He looks a bit put off. And when she's kind of screaming off screen, he seems... I mean, he's acting through the situation almost more in despair, I think. Uh, well, he seems surprised that he was able to go through with it. But clearly he wants to sort of... Like, why do you think he wanted her to stay? Like, it doesn't seem like he had any other intention. I'm not sure that he had like a specific plan. Like uh, No, but it seemed to me like part of the intention would be to stage the situation where this could occur. Here's my take on it, though. She's a bit similar to him in a way. She's also clearly fixated with video. He's been seeing her standing outside the video shop looking at the things. And he also shows her the footage of the pig being slaughtered. And I think he kind of wants to deal with it. He doesn't really know how to articulate or deal with it. And he certainly can't communicate with his parents. And I'm just not convinced that his intentions necessarily are to kill her. But he's curious about death and the talking about that. And, you know, that scene almost... It reminds me a lot about the kind of scene that in other films maybe would be a sexual debut or something. He's inviting the girl over and, you know, you're daring her to take clothes off. She doesn't and she's daring you and you say no and you're calling each other cowards. It kind of has that element to it and where you might might think, oh, this could be a romantic situation, but instead it's a heinous murder. You know what it reminds me a lot of? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you watched it, but the series, The End of the Fucking World, that's basically about a sociopath. A lot like this character here. Okay, okay. And he is also obsessed with death mm. and obsessed with the thought of killing someone. And so in that series, I think even in the first episode, there's mm. a scene very much reminiscent of this. He invites a girl who he doesn't really know mm. home. And he, his intention is to kill her. Mm. But it's sort of staged in the same way where it sort of feels like it would be a sort of romantic debut. So it's uh, a similar setup. Yeah, a very similar setup and a very similar feel. And I think probably Benny, like maybe not 100% with the intention of killing her, mm. but probably toying with some some ideas around this stuff like yeah. i want to see sort of i maybe want to show her this mm. killing scene maybe there seems to be some degree of fantasy involved for yeah. him but whether or not it's intentional i think the intention of Haneke is interesting in how he shows us the whole thing unfolding definitely he's very concerned about media and violence and the unreality of all the media we consume he talks a lot about in interviews about how our experiential sphere is more and more through like video and film and less directly experienced situations yeah he does seem very media critical and you know he says as a quote he's talking about benny's answer about he wanted to know what it was like and Hanukkah says for me those are words of a person who's out of contact with reality when you learn life and reality only through the media you have a sense that you're missing something. I'm missing the feeling of reality. If you only see a film, only images, even images of reality, a documentary, I'm always outside. And I wanted to be, for once, I wanted to know what it was like to be an actor in reality. But I think that's very on point and very much in a vein of what I was talking about earlier. Like he wants mm. to set the stage for him to feel something, mm. for him to finally react to something. And I think it's, Haneke discusses this as if this is very normal mm. when you watch movies too much, right? Mm. You, you want to feel something, but that doesn't make people kill. Like, no, no, no. I'm sort of critical of the outmoded idea that video games and movies cause people to kill because I think there's an ethical and moral barrier you just don't really cross unless you have psychological problems like that. And to me, clearly, Benny is showing a lot of signs of mental instability. 
But maybe for Hanukkah, it's part of a larger media criticism regarding depictions of violence and stuff and feelings of disconnection with the real world. Mm. You know, he, he worked a lot in TV before. His debut was in 74 as a television movie, and he did several films. And his kind of official feature film, The Seventh Continent from 89, it was initially actually meant to be for TV, yeah. but they wouldn't show it. So it became a feature instead. But just like Takashi Miike, he did have a long career in TV before. Yeah. And I think in many ways, he's quite critical of that culture. For example, he, he has this uh, thing where he continues talking about why do people film their vacations, you know, something he's never done. He finds it really perverse. And he says he thinks it comes down to the idea that if you have an image, you own it. And that that's kind of silly, but it's a really strong desire because we see the world through media. So we're in danger of believing that only through media there is reality in a sense. And that's one of the things I find quite interesting. In some ways, even though like the VCRs and like the monitors, they're outdated. It really feels quite current in terms of, you know, TikTok or uh, Snapchat. <laughs> and I mean, that absolutely, it does feel ahead of its time, especially in terms of social media and how we engage with media. Mm. It does feel very on point now even compared to then mm. it's strangely because the technology is so like clunky and outdated but still the the sort of core themes and ideas of the movie really bear watching today and I think uh, it feels very current, even more so now than then, because at that time, I think the criticism isn't as valid. At that time, you, your way of engaging with media was basically just movies, radio, you know, magazines, newspapers. But today we are just completely immersed mm. in media, mm. you know, 24-7 almost. You dream about it, like you're always on your phone. Like these are, of course, just axioms of basic truth like we we know these things and they are discussed to death it feels like social media and how it sort of envelops all our culture but it still feels like a really good take on how we deal with media and i really love the way haneke sort of involves the viewer and implicates the viewer it makes it feel a lot more direct and it makes you sort of deal with the subject matter in a much more i guess yeah direct manner i agree also in the sense that you know in its time i expect it, it could easily be read as a bit media hysteric like you know violent games lead to violent people a bit I mean, satanic panic well, yeah exactly but i'm pretty sure that's not really you know he has like a background in psychology and stuff and i think he's concerned about like the fixation of the image and our because you know benny isn't like the everyday person right i mean he's probably a sociopath but also he has a very specific fixation through images and films and when he's so immersed in that he becomes totally disengaged with reality in a sense and i guess he seeks to reenact one of the most real things he's experienced and that he's obsessing of through this tape that he keeps rewinding and watching yeah through reality and i guess that's what he means becoming an actor in reality right but i think it's not really just about the media here it's about this really negative synergy between mm. media and media consumption mm. and Benny's antisocial tendencies. Mm. Just is a real recipe for disaster. But also there's a real criticism of his upbringing and his parents. Yeah. They are clearly materialists in a sense. They have this really nice apartment mm. with like everything looks very modern, mm. like even for the times. And they're never home, yeah. right? He's always like just allowed to mm. do whatever the mm. fuck he wants. He's like smoking cigarettes and mm. with really no supervision. Mm. And and the way his father reacts to the murder and stuff really cements 
the feeling that he's not really a parent nearly at all. He doesn't really engage with his child. But this is something that comes back a lot in Hanukkah's films, most clearly in uh, The White Ribbon, like the estranged and, should we say, deadly relationship between one generation to the next that are not communicating properly. White Ribbon is set in 1913. It's set in Germany and it's about the young people who grew up, you know, to embrace the Nazi Germany. So it's kind of examination of them as kids and the parent generation. And sort of generational psychologies, generational violence. This is a real, real thing and a real problem. And as far as antisocial tendencies and stuff, like those things often go like generationally too. Abuse, for instance, abusers are more likely, like people who are abused are more likely to be abusers. There's this cycle of violence and abuse that can be perpetuated through their generations in a really sad manner. Now, I'm not sure that Benny's father is like a, a sociopath or whatever, mm -hmm. but he does seem clearly not a very sympathetic character. Yeah, he's eerily pragmatic about the whole uh, thing. Yeah, he doesn't seem to like react emotionally to carving up this girl at all. Like, mm -hmm. you don't really see any reaction from him. Mm -hmm. well, we like... don't actually see the situation. No, we don't. But we he, don't. he doesn't like you know, planning it and his kind of mental state afterwards doesn't seem phased. No, he does seem just curious just sort of why did you do that that's strange maybe it's not to like... know though i mean i think he's unsettled that his son could do such a thing and he wants to just cover it up yeah and but... i think also he he might be a bit afraid of the answers he would get yeah definitely right? yeah he doesn't he doesn't want to engage too closely with maybe his own responsibility but also like the consequences of their future if this was to yeah clearly materialize. like he probably feels like he would probably bear some responsibility mm. for the mm. impulse I mean, he's clearly responsible in disposing of the body, mm. so he's clearly implicated in that sense as well. But, but you know, the parents are always kind of responsible when it comes to kids. So, like, the blame would fall on them anyway to some extent. Right. And as I said earlier, I, mm. I feel like like I'm more annoyed with them mm, yeah. than I am with Benny. Because, yeah. like I said, Benny is clearly mentally not 100% mm. emotionally mm. available, mm. right? But, you know, the mother looks seriously... I mean, she looks very unsettled and unsure what to do and the scene when he shows the video to them like her, her face is kind of twisting in horror and she takes a long time to take it in over herself and she has this scene in Egypt when she just bursts out crying in despair when they're in the hotel room yeah it's towards the end of their vacation yeah. and she hasn't really shown any reaction well, during the vacation well she's been holding it in you can yeah, right. tell she's holding it in yeah. but she's clearly emotionally reacting to it but at the same time she doesn't have enough agency or willpower to do anything about it yeah. it's just really pathetic and sad but at the same time she is responsible like you can't mm. just because she feels bad she's mm. still involved in the whole disposal of the body and mm. stuff honestly to me one of the things that sort of felt a bit unreal was his parents willingness to just cut up this young girl <laughs> and not really do anything like that doesn't feel like you have three separate people involved in this and only one of them actually killed and yet they're willing to sort of mm. go to this length like it would haunt them for the rest of their lives yeah. like i don't really that to me was sort of a hard sell but i under like i understand in the story like narrative wise mm. drama wise i understand it in that sense but to me it's not the strongest story hanukkah has told probably like it mm. does feel a bit hard to swallow right well i guess also because you know hanukkah doesn't try to explain character motivations right so it does feel like so, it's so external that yeah. you really have to buy it on the situation alone yeah i didn't have a hard time buying it in in the narrative 
No, not yeah. in the narrative. More in like, a, like a, a, it's an extreme thing to do. Yeah, like more in a believable situation is mm. what I mean. Like narrative-wise, mm. it works very well. Yeah. Like it sets up a lot of themes and stuff, and works between the characters. Mm. But just in a believable sense, it does feel a, a bit more fantasy than reality. Well, I mean, I'm sure people do act like that. Sure, and parents are willing to go to great lengths to protect their children. But in this sense, it doesn't seem like to protect <laughs> children. It seems more like to protect yourself from the gossips of your neighbor. <laughs> or the gossip of your co-workers, yeah. right? One of the things that, you know, re-watching Hanukkah, I've been com- quite aware of is the way he constructs a scene, often, you know, focusing on what's in and out of frame. For example, this scene where the girl dies. So they've had an exchange talking about the gun. And then when he shoots her, she's in front of the camera. And he's kind of like, oh, shoulder. you don't see him clearly. So you don't see his expression. But when she's shot, she falls down. And behind her, you see the TV monitor of the room. She kind of crawls around a bit and he also leaves the frame, but you can see him in the TV monitor, which is now the way you see the rest of the scene. And he's kind of scuffling about the room, looking for more ammunition, then shooting her, going about, unsure what to do. She's screaming in pain. and That's horrible. She dies off camera as well. You don't see her in the monitor either. You see her shortly before she dies. She yeah. crawls into view and then yeah. she's sort of dragged back mm. and you hear a gunshot and her screaming stops mm. instantly. And the way the sound functions in that scene... Is really strong. Like the image isn't explicit, but the sound is so powerful and unsettling. Right. Like you don't have to show it to have it be extremely unsettling, right? Mm. We've discussed this previously where, where a lot of times mm. when filmmakers refuse to show violence happening, mm. it's often sort of a way of just cowardly <laughs> way of not dealing with it, or it can be sort of also a way of aestheticizing something that is actually terrible. Or like old ideas of censorship. There could be many reasons, like an idea of Yeah, and also just a way of not terrorizing the audience too much, right? (laughs) But here it's actually just as terrible, even though you don't see... Because the screaming Mm. is so harrowing Mm. and so, so heartbreaking. The acting is very intense. Mm. In some ways, it's almost like literature. When you can't see something directly, you have to create the image in your head. And Hanukkah forces you to create it very vividly because of the sound. And, you know, film as a medium, it's one of the big strengths, one of the unique things about film, I think, is that it's so good at creating empathy. Very quickly, you get emotionally engaged with the image. And here, at the same time, you know, you're not allowed to see, but you are emotionally engaged. And that becomes really powerful. Uh... It becomes incredibly powerful. But one of the probably drawbacks of cinema and of sort of pictures, right? It doesn't engage your imagination in the same way mm. that probably mm, literature and sound and music and stuff can do in another way. So it's interesting to see movies that actually force you to use your imagination. Like throughout the movie and, and Hanukkah in general, I think it's very good at making the audience use their mental faculties mm. and use their imaginations to sort of interact with the movie or sort of act or react to the movie. That's really kind of one of his main goals, I think. Right, and he's very explicit about it. He's an incredibly intelligent person, yeah, like yeah. as a director, mm. and he clearly has an intention with... He's very precise mm. in how he deals with these things mm. and how he technically does it in mm. his movies, and he works very well. The way he externalizes the situations in this movie I also find very interesting mm. in the sense of almost sort of Brechtian theater yeah. that sort of makes you deal with the situation itself, not so much the pomp and circumstance mm-hmm. of it. It sort of makes it almost technical in a way. You you have to deal with what actually goes on, not just the aestheticizing of it. Yeah, you don't have like
like the buffer of like dramatic music which tells you how to feel but it also kind of softens it kind of distances you from reality in a sense yeah the use of music in this movie is, is also interesting there is music mm. and it's quite low key and, mm. and it's often just used in situations that aren't extreme yeah there's not a score in a sense no not in a like traditional sense anyway mm. but there is sort of kind of unsettling ambiance mm. in scenes that probably shouldn't immediately be so unsettling mm. right so it does create a real tension throughout the movie that's very interesting because the music is not there at all when the horrific yeah, shit yeah, goes on yeah. a lot of his films he uses sound in this way where it i think he's spoken about this of how images work differently than sounds that you know sounds are in some ways much more powerful because you can't confront it directly like in some ways an image is so concrete that uh... right you don't really have a filter mm. for that either it's so immediate like i feel like visual information you sort of have to interpret mm. in some sort of fashion and it's not as immediate as sound sound sort of just sort of hits you on a visceral level in a quite different way like we discussed like how written word affects you but sound is also one mm. of those things where it really just has a way of creating an instant effect when you hear a minor chord, mm. you're instantly like, that's sad, right? Mm. And you hear a major chord, that's sort of more more happy or, or more upbeat or whatever. And Haneke uses all these things in a very like professional way to really like dissect the way the audience reacts to extreme scenes of violence, extreme situations. It's really well done. I wanted to read some more of the things he said concerning the image, which is quite interesting, I think. He says, um, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but more or less, he says, We allow ourselves feelings when facing an image, but not when facing a person, because it's more dangerous. The image can't react anymore. The image is finished. That's why you can be relaxed. You can look at it. In fact, that's also the origin of all horror movies. You can take pleasure in the horror because you can be sure that it won't do anything to you. If you're in the same situation in reality, you can't possibly have a positive impression of that. All genres like horror are like that because you're under the illusion that you're in control of the situation. It's very pleasurable. That's why we pay a lot of money for that. But it's also very dangerous because if we try to do it in our own lives, it's very serious. That's a bit of the story that's told in Benny's video. Yeah, and actually that's an assessment I'm, I'm not really... 100% comfortable with mm. because humans do have a very good ability mm. to understand fiction, to understand fictionalized violence. Mm. Playing GTA, for instance, you don't really see that translating to you, you know, running over pedestrians. It doesn't really work that way. Mm. Well, there's not a one-to-one -one relation. No, I there's not a one-to-one -one relationship. Yeah. But I would say mm. that, that sort of fear of mm. fictionalized, especially like considering the stuff we discuss, mm -hmm. like all the horrific shit we yeah, discuss yeah, yeah. constantly. It's enjoyable in a certain sense, especially like intellectually discussing horrific mm. shit. Is, it's quite satisfying mm. <laughs> in a way that like some people would probably feel ashamed of or, mm. or probably think of as negative. But it doesn't really translate to us going around recreating horrific shit no. in our own lives. But I don't think that's his point. Probably not. Uh, I mean, he does create a lot of disturbing images himself. And right. if that was his fear, then he probably wouldn't. I no, but I do feel like it's part of his point i do think he has a real fear yeah of yeah i don't think he's afraid that if you watch a film then you're gonna kill someone but i think he's talking about how disturbed our relationship with reality can be i think he wants to make you acutely aware of the difference between you know he doesn't consider um, films a mirror of reality even a documentary film like it's not mimetic it's not a copy of reality it's an addition to it it's not a thing that mirrors reality it's a thing that's added to reality 
Well, yeah. it's often reflective of reality, stuff that goes on in reality, for sure. Well, but how does it function? We're often taught to think of like the news or whatever, that it's just a reflection of reality. Now we're watching reality. Now we're watching TV. That's the real thing we're watching, right? And I think he's in strong opposition to that idea that it's something else. It's a work adding to reality. It's also creating ideas. It's also creating a worldview it's its own separate object as part of a reality, not just reflecting it. Well, I find that sort of ambiguous because what does he mean by reality? Reality is contextual, right? To most people, their reality is what experiential. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But yeah. also to a lot of theorists, a lot of philosophical theory. To some, it's on a more theoretical level. To some, you know, empiricism is more important. But especially in like more modern scientific thought, like especially in humanist fields, reality is more of a relational thing and more of a contextual thing. Some people have their realities and some times have a different sort of view. And so saying that, like, it sounds like is discussing a more monolithic sense of reality, that there's this sort of... Uh... But I think you're misunderstanding a little bit, because, I mean, of course you have perceived reality, but that's not really what he's talking about. He's talking about, like, media as an object, right, as a thing, and how it relates to... Because so much of media is presented almost as if it is a mirror of reality. But the point is that it's not a mirror of reality. It's a new part of reality. It's a new object that we relate to. You understand? Yeah, yeah. like, you're not taking a slice of reality. Yeah, and, and... reflecting it. You're creating a new slice and adding to the pie of reality in a sense right but you can say that about almost anything yeah and yeah it's true I i'm not sure what the sort of well the question is how we relate to it that's the point so if you're not conscious about how media functions i think the idea is that it can be problematic Yes, it can. Like, you see it all the time now mm. with, like, the whole, oh, God, I'm so sick and disgusting mm, yeah, of yeah. fake news and shit, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and how sort of people have a warped sense of reality. Yeah. Media literacy is a part of that. How capable are you of discerning? There's a lot of culture involved as well, but, you know. Of course, but media literacy is also so important. And I can deeply feel Mikael Haneke's mm. criticisms or fears about media reality. Mm. Like, I totally get that because especially with the proliferation of social media and stuff mm. like people's realities become so insular in a way yeah. and so sort of self-affirming in these sort of social echo chambers on the internet for instance that's sort of a horrible thing in a lot of ways and if that's what he's talking about then then i can certainly certainly see his point I do think he's a very interesting filmmaker and he's quite vocal about his intentions unlike say Lynch yeah. or... Lynch even... is like the typical director who refuses to discuss yeah. movies. And also like Takashi Miike, who's, who doesn't really talk about intentions in a way. You know, Haneke, he doesn't answer questions of why things happen, but he talks a lot about his thoughts around the medium and where the idea comes from. You know, Benny's video, the seeds of it was from like an article with police interviewing a boy who had murdered another child. And he'd said the line that Benny says in the film that he just wanted to know what it was like. So for a while, Haneke collected some of these articles and that was kind of like a reoccurring answer. And uh, it unsettled him and he kind of wanted to explore what that was and what it meant. And I think in many ways, the project of Benny's video is to examine... I mean, his medium is like camcorders and monitors and that sort of stuff as a way of being distanced from reality. But actually, that's very fascinating. Actually, the whole idea of... Mm. 
murderers, confessions and interviews with serial killers and stuff is often interesting in the way that often you don't know what reality is. You don't really know their motivations. Mm -hmm. And often, a lot of times, I think people who kill don't really give fair or truthful explanations mm -hmm. about why do yeah. they do it. Often, it's incredibly common to frame it in a way that sort of absolves you in some way of guilt. Even if you're like a thrill killer or mm -hmm. like a sexual sadist or mm -hmm. whatever, you sort of frame it in the way that they double-crossed you in some way. They mistreated you. You didn't like them because of some reason, when in fact, the reason might be that you just enjoy mm. killing, right? And so the whole thing, I, I don't know why I did it. Maybe I just did it to see what mm. would happen. It's probably a more truthful answer than a lot of mm. killers actually give. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Like, it's hard to know. Yeah, we, we're not meant to know, I think, with Benny. That's a huge that's... part of this movie, too. You don't yeah. really know the intentions. Like, you get the answer. Mm. But as I mentioned earlier, I said it was sort of a non-answer because it doesn't really explain anything. So it's sort of what the whole movie deals with. Because you're thinking, like, why? What's, what's really going on? What are the motivations of these characters? And the second situation where he does something really unpredictable and... A little bit frightening is, of course, when he turns on his parents and reveals to the police that he's murdered someone. And um, we talked a little bit about his motivation. But, you know, I think feel like a sense, a sort of desperation in Benny and kind of a wish to absolve or relate to. I mean, he's seeking for some kind of way to relate to reality, I think. And he's dealing with death and dealing with consequence. And the parents, they kind of make up their mind for how to deal with the murder. But when he shows it, you know, to me, there's, there's an element in him that wants to deal with the consequence of right. his actions. Right. I, I totally agree. It seems like at the end there, he just sort of wants to face some sort of consequence yeah. or wants to see something happen. Because mm. it seems to me like he's lived his life without consequences mm. and his life without really repercussions for mm. any of his actions. He seems to live a life without supervision from his yeah. parents and seems to like constantly be cross thresholds of mm. what he's allowed to do and of course he does cross the threshold of murder eventually mm. and so i do think there's some part of him that i'm not sure it's a redemptive part of him but it does seem like some part of him wants to see some consequences mm. whether they are good or bad because i think he's sort of you couldn't interpret in the way that he would be tired of the way his parents interact with him the, the way his parents have treated him mm. the way his parents are Haneke also talks about, um, you know, why he had his head shaven. And he says that it's something that can be interpreted in many ways, which he always says. The two examples that he brings up is, yeah, it could be like a protest or rebellion. But he also says that it can be seen as a, a self-punishment to make himself like a prisoner or to declare self guilty to the public. Yeah, that's how I sort of interpret it. Like not guilt, maybe, but it's transformative, right? Mm, he yeah. wants to sort of cross over to a, a different version of himself mm. so whether that's because he's feeling guilt or because mm. of, but, but it does seem like some sort of way of reacting mm. to what he's done in a sense i think maybe because he doesn't really react to it emotionally yeah. so he wants to sort of physically react to it or mm. create a reaction mm. and he creates this reaction too with his parents mm. like he's he is struggling it seems to me and seems through the movie with a lack of feeling a mm. lack of engagement with mm. the real world mm. and he wants to sort of force engagement force consequences in the real world yeah and you know the murder is a transformative situation 
but it doesn't really take place for him until he's shaven his head because then he's you know he's visibly different it's an indicator that clearly marks that he's now not the same right because right after the murder he doesn't really react to it no. at all he goes no. and eats some yogurt and he's mm. like so blasé about the mm. whole thing he does his homework yeah, while he, she's dead he calls a friend and has a talk and they they go to a concert uh. yeah so it seems to me like he has to intellectually react to these things because he doesn't emotionally react to the real world at all and he seems to engage with it mainly through media right mm. but it is interesting that he almost forces himself to make consequences for his actions yeah in a way that i feel like because a lot of sociopaths in real life do actually function in society mm. and the way they do that is through observing social norms even though they don't really have the sort of empathy that is behind those mm. rules mm. they can still function if they will themselves to do that mm. like they don't generally go around killing people unless you know they have something to gain by it which you normally don't mm. normally the, there are extreme repercussions from doing that mm. but it seems to me like with these antisocial tendencies have has gone through his life without really fixing consequences mm. or anything and so he sort of wants to experience something in real life he wants to experience basically is how it can be viewed i think and i think that's it seems to me like it's part of Hanukkah's motives for making this movie. Yeah, and you know, Hanukkah, like so many others of the filmmakers we talk about, you know, he's he's concerned about asking the questions, not giving the answers, so that we have to deal with the themes and the uh, situations that he. For gets. sure, but but almost in a way that feels clinical. Unlike a lot of the movies we've discussed on this podcast, mm. his work seems very precise mm. and very. As opposed to the more artistic and more floaty sense of just wanting to uh, create an expression mm. of something, he, he does seem like he's very interested in like almost a sociological sense of yeah. wanting to experiment with how you interact mm. via the medium of film in a very technical and clinical sense. Uh, and it's very fascinating as a filmmaker because of this. Yeah, there's something very cerebral about his filmmaking style. Yeah, in a sense, but at mm. the same time, they work very yeah. well yeah. dramatically. Yeah. So, like, it could seem like that would create some dry and really boring mm. productions, but they are really engaging. Yeah, it's not like a dry intellectual trying to study a phenomena in a very clinical sense. I mean, he's he's a keen observer of people, I think, and he understands narrative and drama and the cinematic language extremely well yeah for sure he's incredibly competent in that sense but it, there's also this this almost von Trier-ish sense of playing with the audience mm. playing with audience expectations yeah. his sense of wanting to do that is really well sort of translated mm. into his films mm. it really comes through his will to interact or engage with the audience like it's very playful for the sort of clinical and sociological implications of mm. it. it it's kind of fun too mm. i think he does have a a mischievous side to right. him not quite as explicitly as von Trier. and i think a lot of people don't necessarily pick up on it i mean in some cases it's quite clear like in in funny games he kind of winks at the, he does wink at the camera quite literally. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very explicit and funny uh, game. But in here, it's not so explicit, no. but at the same time, it is quite, I wouldn't say funny, but it's quite fun the way he, mm. he does it. Yeah, and these two films, they relate to each other in several ways. You know, the one thing is that Anna Frisch is a central character in both of the films. Both also have an English title presented in a similar way, like big, bold red letters in two words, funny games, in his video. And, you know, some of the mischievousness of him can be found in the title, you know, funny games. It's not a funny film, it's a deeply unpleasant film. And Benny's video, yeah, but what are you talking about there? You, are you talking about the videos that he's obsessing over, the video he made? You know, it has some several layers there that's kind of um, 
Yeah, actually, that's just something we didn't discuss. Because he does make this basically snuff film. Yeah. But doesn't he, like, turn it in yeah. to the video store? So basically, he's sort of, again, trying to, maybe not provoke, but he's sort of sending his actions out into the world with sort of this, I don't know, maybe not even expectation, but he seems to want to create some reality. I don't know. Like, he's exchanging this basically fake violence with real violence mm. in a very explicit way. And I found that pretty interesting. I think the title refers to that video mm. he made of the murder. But that's been his video. Mm. And like that just symbolic yeah. action is, is really integral to the whole plot and the whole themes of the movie. But the interesting thing is, it's kind of like the thing that film is concerned about is kind of the act. I mean, like the narrative, I think you could say the narrative focal point is the act of murder. And the title is an indicator of this act, but it's an indirect indicator, right? Yeah, yeah it's an objectification of yeah, it. Yeah. It's, it's an object. It's mm. not the act itself. Mm. It's the way you consume, mm. <laughs> which is... So, like it's about yeah. how you consume media how yeah. how violence how reality like all these themes are, are sort of summed up into the title it's a, it's a good yeah. title yeah so it functions on the meta level as well right you know apart from sounding like uh, hey did you see Benin's video yeah, like, yeah exactly it sounds sort of stupid in that yeah. sense too which is like a bit funny yeah. like these movie titles they seem to be a playful indicator of, of something beyond the sort of seriousness of it there's this sort of meta level mm. of, of humor too like even though he's not very explicitly funny he, he he has this sort of playful vibe in his sort of way of being very explicit about these sort of engagement modes. Yeah, and you know, uh, Benet's video is like the second film in the trilogy, they call it Location Trilogy, with the seventh continent and 71 fragments of uh, orders of chronology. Right. And, and both of those are much more conceptual in a sense. Uh, they're also quite austere and cold and very observing. Like but, you can't say he's a warm movie maker. He does display it at times. Yeah. I mean, he, he kind of has a suspicious perception of humankind, I think. Like, he, he often frames problems of people rather than the, the good stuff about people. That's typically what he's concerned with. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's no John Hughes. He's, he's <laughs> not this wholesome... Like, he has a very... Like, it's very interesting, but it's also very... But in some ways, I think he's more wholesome because he's very concerned about the problems of society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, the ethics, it, yeah. both of film and of story. So where John Hughes has loads of these feel-good movies that are fun to watch. Maybe there's some implications there that are not so healthy. But that's not really the case with Haneke. His implications are always very well thought out and... Uh... He's ethically very above board. Like mm. He's morally very, like... Um... He's one of these extreme movie makers. Mm. Well, if you can call it extreme, he's very mm. like very sensible about mm. the way he does this extreme stuff. But he does seem very concerned with morality mm. and concerned with human betterment. Mm. Like he does seem to have this project going on about his movies having this role mm. as art. It is very wholesome in a mm. sense, mm. you know, without being moralistic or trite about it. Because he does seem to want to explore these mm. ideas. He's not giving you sort of moralism. And I think that's the main point. You know, I've been reading a lot about like films and ethics lately. And this period of film, like this new extremism, I think you can think of it as like a laboratory for exploring ethics and uh, morality of media and culture. Yeah. It's like, a good way to look at it. I like think. Uh, as I read in the book, The New Extremism in Europe, the movies in The New Extremism sort of wave as it's been called you mm. know the french new extremism and the european new extremism and the movies there have so often been criticized right and we, mm. and we talked about it so yeah, much yeah, like yeah. The every way episode it, yeah <laughs> every episode is like somebody like the critics fainting at Cannes, and and you know it's it's always you know criticisms mm. of misogyny and misanthropy mm. when in fact like the whole project like it's not 
a monolithic culture by any means. Like, mm. it's not a movement that's planned. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a, a general tendency, you might mm. say, and inspirational and stuff. But to a lot of these movie makers, it's really about sort of new modes of implicating the audience in a way and embodying violence in a way that forces the audience to deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. In a sense, that's, that's way more sort of moralistic uh, or so, not moralistic, that does have a negative tinge to it, but it's way more ethical, more ethical in a sense than just uh, a slasher movie or, or a, like an action movie where, mm. where the good guy just brutally slaughters a bunch of, you know, bad guys. <laughs> it's way more ethical, even though it's way more horrible to watch. But maybe in a sense, it is more horrible to watch just because you're forced to deal with it on a more personal level almost. Yeah, you are forced to deal with it on a personal level. Right. But Hanukkah tends to escape that kind of scrutiny. He's not often accused of let's say, misogyny or superfluous violence. No, he's, he's too smart for that. Yeah. Like, you, you can't really say that. His movies are clearly, like, theoretical, mm. uh, have a real sense of cinematic history and, mm. and stuff. I guess some of the reasons also because it implicates you as a viewer so strongly and it doesn't really show gory details. Not in the same way as a lot of no. other movies we've discussed. And also, like, at times he's so blatant about mm. implicating yeah. the viewer that you just can't escape yeah. the implication. Mm. Whereas in a lot of these other movies, some people just watch them and feel feel like they're watching snuff or whatever yeah and like i can un understand the emotion when you watch gaspar noah and you don't want to watch like eight minute rape scene right mm. you can feel very uncomfortable about that mm. that might be so extreme that you don't really think about it mm. But a lot of these movies also are interesting in just the discussions they create afterwards Definitely. Uh, in, in the sort of critical media. So even if the movie watching experience is horrible, maybe out of this horrible experience can come good and fruitful discussions about movie making, about art, about how we perceive and deal with horrific things that happen in real life. Yeah, that's why we're here. Yeah, right. So um, I think Michael Honecker is probably one of the most competent people to do unpleasant movies. Agreed. Yeah. So, Svara, have you got an unpleasant recommendation for us this evening? I do. I really, really do. So... I'm going to recommend a movie called Cure from 1997. It's been described as like one of the first of the J-horror mm. wave uh, movies, but really it's more of a sort of thriller. Maybe you can define it as a sort of supernatural, vaguely supernatural thriller. It sort of deals with basically a serial killer and a sort of um, detective investigating this case. And it, it's, it's a weird, weird case. You know, there's a lot of murders happening, but there is no commonality. Well, there is commonality, but they're perpetrated by different people all the time. So you have like seemingly these different criminals doing the exact same types of murder around the country. So this guy is investigating this and it does sort of take on um, like eventually there's a lot of stuff dealing with hypnosis and reality and sort of mesmerism and, and things like that. Uh, it, it becomes quite weird in a way that's very fascinating. Mm. At the same time, it's I wouldn't call it a directly unpleasant movie, but it's very unsettling. Mm. And so I just really recommend that you watch it if you're into sort of, not even J-horror, but like um, Bong Joon-ho, for instance, it's one of his biggest inspirations. Like in my mind, it's a lot similar to Memories of Murder, for mm. instance. The sort of uh, really unsettling detective stories that the West doesn't really do as well <laughs> as the East, in my view. Yeah, it's really good. And it's kind of, 
genre-wise, it's it's often considered a horror. I can see yeah. why, but yeah. it doesn't really. Yeah. It's a bit more than just a horror movie. Yeah, it's kind of genre agnostic, or you know, it uses several elements of different types of. Right, but it's um, also quite artistic. Yeah, very uh, and quite personal. Mm. Like, there's a lot of sort of human, emotional, mm. like relational and like interactive stuff that's often not really present in the same way in a lot of horror, and especially J horror is often more. More dealing with the direct horror and sort of really supernatural and murders and stuff. This is more more personal. It does. It's a really human movie, but it's also quite unsettling. Yeah, and it's it's very creepy and uneasy, and there's a lot of things that aren't so clear. So you kind of held at arm's length, yeah, uh, quite a bit in terms of what's going on, how the things work, and that works really well because like some of the things in this movie are really unsettling on this level because you don't really have enough context and there's a lot of stuff going on that's not really explained in a way that's really really cool and really enjoyable to me so yeah i watched it it's directed by kiyoshi kurosawa and uh really well made and Mm. and interesting yeah i agree it's a really good film so do you have any recommendation thomas i do and it is an experimental short or like half an hour film by stan brackage called the act of seeing with one's own eyes and the title is like the literal definition of an autopsy and you know, I guess I kind of thought of it as, you know, I saw this when I was quite young, like mid-teens, something like that. And it's probably the most disturbing thing I've ever seen. I had to turn it off three times, I think, and come back to it. And, you know, it, what it is, it's Stan Brackett, who's like this amazing experimental filmmaker. He does a lot of, he paints on the film strip and does has a lot of these visually abstract, beautifully things. And um, Yeah, I'm just shocked that it's so, so disturbing that even you find it disturbing. Yeah, well... <laughs> I guess it's kind of my Benny's video, like it's it's Thomas's video, yeah, Thomas Stan's video, video yeah. I guess, because <laughs> yeah. it's it's really fascinating, it's really beautiful, but it is what it says. Stan Brackage is going around, he's filming, I think it's in Philadelphia, he's filming autopsies. So, you know, literally you're seeing bodies being cut up, you see like a chest being cut up and like opened up and you look at the body and he films it beautifully. He's shot on, I think it's 16mm and some different film stock maybe, and there's no sound that's almost the worst thing because there's no barrier between you and what you're seeing. It becomes really acute. And he films a lot of things like, there's often a lot of things in front of the frame, like coats of the people performing the autopsy. Like There's a lot of things in the foreground. The image is often quite disrupted by other elements in front of. And, you know, you, you see like a head opened up and the brain taken out. And, uh, you know, it's green. <laughs> yeah. It sounds horrible. Uh, and there's a lot of things that also surprised me about, like the actual physicality of the body. Like uh, you have like a body that's completely charred and burned. Yeah. But you also have like bodies that have rotted for a long time. Yeah. And it reminds me of, you know, these um, Day of the Dead, these Romaro films where you have like blue zombies walking around and they look so fake. Yeah. You know, bodies actually look like that. Yeah. Uh, they look totally blue. Uh, and I was quite put off by that, actually. And uh, yeah, like just the, the fatty parts of, of the body and like the skin. And a famous uh, critic, Jonathan Rosenbaum, he, he says it's uh, one of the most direct confrontations with death ever recorded on film. But, you know, it, it is disturbing, but it's also beautiful. And I think it's really interesting in terms of relating to the body as an object, as like a just the physicality of the body. You know, what are the materials and what does it look like on the inside? And there's something, it reveals a lot of the fragility and like the, you know, it's a lifeless object. I definitely recommend checking it out. 
like it's a strong experience, but it's also like artistically made and really interesting. But yeah, also extremely unsettling and unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably one of your recommendations. I'm not planning on checking out because <laughs> that that just sounds fucking horrific to me. Yeah, I, I don't want to see that. Okay, yeah. I, I I get that. You know, most people maybe wouldn't, but I'm too fragile for that. On some <laughs> level, I think it's extremely healthy to kind of relate to the bodies the physicality of the body as well and you know but i think like you have to be mentally capable of watching stuff like yeah. that and i, I don't think i am <laughs> you know well, i'll just keep watching horrible movies instead. <laughs> well certainly i appreciate that but uh, to anyone else out yeah. there and stan brackage you know his other stuff is amazing but um this is really unpleasant and uh, recommended yeah. officially by me yeah stamp of approval yeah so uh, next, we're watching Mikkel Haneke's Funny Games. So that's going to be interesting. I'm sure there'll be a bit of a continuation of our talk from this. For sure. I mean, it, it has a lot of thematic connections with Benny's video. And, you know, if you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protomail.com. You can check out our Instagram, uh, slash unpleasantmovies. Uh, the music for this episode was composed and conducted by Umulium. That's yes, uh, conducted by <laughs> orchestra. Yes. Svare Ogur and you. Scanning. My name is Thomas Simonson Bambra. My name is Svarovur. And thank you for now. And we'll see you in Betty's video. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye.